0: This is Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. I'm your host, Amy Allison. Today, I'm back in Oakland, sitting down with a visitor from Seattle, Washington, Eric Liu. He's in the Bay Area, touring with his latest book, You're More Powerful Than You Think, A Citizen's Guide to Making Change Happen. Stay tuned. Eric is the founder and CEO of Citizen University, which teaches powerful citizenship through a portfolio of national programs. He serves as Executive Director of the Aspen Institute Program on Citizenship and American Identity. In a previous life, Eric was White House speechwriter for President Bill Clinton and later as a President's Deputy Domestic Policy Advisor. Today he lives in Seattle, where he teaches Civic Leadership at the University of Washington and hosts Citizen University TV, an award-winning program about civic power. He's a columnist for CNN.com and a contributing writer for The Atlantic. Eric Lou, thanks for joining us on Democracy in Color.
1: Amy, it's great to be here.
0: You just came from Seattle?
1: Uh, not exactly. I'm based in Seattle, but I've been on the road um, talking about this book. So I had come from uh, L.A. and was in San Francisco the last couple of days and uh, delighted to be in sunny Oakland.
0: Yeah. Well, you're, you're making the rounds with a new book. Tell me a little bit about it.
1: Yeah. Well, the book is called You're More Powerful Than You Think. Uh, Citizen's Guide to Making Change Happen. And uh, it's all about uh, both this moment that we're living in right now of bottom-up citizen power, uh, people pushing back against concentrated, monopolized, rigged games. And uh, and we're certainly seeing that in the last 100-plus days uh, uh, since this administration took over. But uh, the story that I'm telling well precedes that. I mean, I think if you look back over the course of the last few years, And frankly, not just in the left. I mean, everything from the Tea Party to Occupy Wall Street to Dreamers to $15 Now to Black Lives Matter, these are all part of the same surge uh, that is the result of when you have 40 40 years uh, of inequality, 40 years of concentration of wealth and voice and clout in a country, uh, you inevitably get this great push back. And so the book is in the first place about that moment, but what it's really focusing on are, strategies for everyday americans to actually go from the primal scream of i'm not going to take it anymore to actually being literate in power and understanding how you change the game to change the system
0: but eric i think we're still in a primal scream moment don't you think (laughs) (laughs) all right i just i am a person on social media i'm scrolling down twitter feeds and i'm looking at uh, the latest news Uh, The Russia hack, the firing of FBI, uh, Director Comey, the response from the White House. And what I get are calls to make phone calls. Hey, everybody make a phone call to your congressperson or your senator, half of whom are not interested in what I have to say, Mm -hmm. and and most of whom I don't live in their districts. Mm -hmm. When we talk about citizen power, what do you talking about in in the face of just such bold lies and such uh, drama that's coming from the White House it really seems to threaten the core uh, of our republic.
1: Well, let's, I mean, make no mistake, it does threaten the core of the republic. Donald Trump is a menace to the republic in his authoritarianism, his bald-faced lying, uh, his threats to institutions of democratic self-government, and certainly even what's been unfolding the last few days uh, with his firing of the very uh, person who's been investigating his potential ties to uh, and entanglements with Russia. Uh, but all that said, I think the reality of the United States today, it's the reality of any society, um, is that authoritarian strong men don't come to power except as the people let them, period. If we let them come to power, if we check out, if we say, hey, there's nothing I can do, uh, then they will come to power. They will get emboldened, they will get, uh, but, but I think w- one of the moments that we have right now yeah, I know it can feel frustrating or seemingly uh, ineffective to uh, call members of Congress, but I think the broader thing about uh, the, the thing that we get to do as citizens right now um, is mobilizing people power, voice power, money power, ideas power to say, look, we've got to we've got to draw a bright line here, uh, and we've got to say we must have an independent investigation. Number one, and number two, every member of Congress uh, and uh, who is resisting. Uh, that kind of independent investigation has to feel unrelenting heat uh, from their constituents and from the media. And I, I do think that it is wholly possible for us as citizens to contain uh, this breach uh, that that we're seeing right now.
0: I'm looking at places like South Korea where I don't know, a million people turned out uh, to uh, take out the, uh, the, the president. And uh, I think in this week we saw a liberal... Win the election in South Korea with a 75 percent voter turnout. Here in this country, we can only dream of that level of citizen participation. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about what we can do, really, you're talking to a fairly small number of people in this country compared to the larger population. What do you What do you do about that?
1: Yeah. Well, I think one of, I mean, another example, actually, in recent days, of course, is the French election, mm. and. Uh, you know, they had what was for them relatively low turnout, which was 74 uh, percent. And the last time the United States had 74 percent turnout was 1896. Oh, my goodness. Right. When hardly anyone
0: could vote. When hardly anyone could when vote. Could vote. <laughs> exactly. It
1: wasn't exactly a diverse <laughs> electorate in 1896. Right. Uh, but I think the look, uh, you're right. That, but, but all that underscores for me, and I don't mean to be glib, um, is the simple power of showing up. Right. One of the things that uh, I said all going into last year's election, and I will say again uh, right now, is there is no such thing as not voting. Not voting is voting. Not voting is voting to hand your power right over to somebody else who's going to abuse it, who's going to exercise it against your interests, uh, yet in your name. Uh, and the idea that, oh, I hate these choices, oh, the game is so rigged, I'm just going to check out, or I'm going to protest by not voting. Um, is not only foolhardy, it's dangerous right now, right? And, and so I think part of what we've got to do, and again, particularly in communities of color, um, the, the idea that Donald Trump won because there was a great surge of white working class voters turns out to have been a fiction. Donald Trump won because turnout for communities of color dropped substantially uh, in, between 2012 and 2016, right? And so I think we, uh, particularly in communities of color, have to be thinking about how do we reawaken our family members, our neighbors, our friends, uh, to remember that there's no such thing as not voting? It's a big task. It is a big task. It is, a, it is the task of democracy and color. It, right? is, a I mean, ta- it's a, it is a task of a lifetime. <laughs>
0: uh, uh, you're founder and CEO of Citizen University. Is that what you're trying to do, is to get people to actually turn out to vote?
1: Well, voting is one piece of it, but we define citizenship uh, pr- pretty uh, bro- more broadly than that. Um, and I should in fact say at the outset, when I talk about citizen power, um, it's worth unpacking both halves of that term, right? When I say citizen, I'm not talking about documentation status under the immigration or naturalization laws of the US. Uh, I, I'm talking about citizen in this deeper ethical sense of, are you a member of the body, right? Are you a contributor to community? Uh, and, and, and do you have the values and the systems knowledge and the skills to be an effective participant in the life of the body? Part of that is voting. If you actually have uh, United States citizenship, Uh, But whether or not you have it, there are plenty of ways, I think, for one to show up and contribute and participate, right? To put it another way, there are lots of folks in this country who lack the documents but live like big citizens. And there are lots of other folks in this country. Wait, what do you mean by that? I mean people who are undocumented but who are great neighbors, great volunteers, great participants, great contributors to community, great business owners, great, you You know, know.
0: Actually, when you said that phrase, I was like, we never hear about the undocumented discussed in this way yeah
1: we' we're, we're always talk, telling a narrative of they're in the shadows or they're you know it's breaking one the, of the law uh, breaking or they the don't law deserve to yeah
0: be here but um, no
1: but they, they, they are contributors not only to the economy which is uh, you know if you wave that wand and deported 11 million undocumented people the United States economy would crater number one but put aside the economic piece of it again in the civic and social fabric of every community where there are immigrants um they they are contributors did you uh, see the
0: the uh, video of the state legislator in texas um a couple weeks ago who was actually getting very emotional at the dais when the body was considering and actually ultimately passed an anti undocumented you know anti immigration uh law and uh started attacking sanctuary cities and uh, he's his background's chinese american he was really saying you know I'm an em- immigrant my parents are immigrants this is not what america's about to what extent can we redefine some of those basic terms the way that the trump administration talks about immigration and everything else muslim just the way that they otherize hmm. large portions of our electorate people who are actually citizens or actually part of the broad citizens citizenry how do we how do we take that back and put that back front and center
1: you know, one of the core parts of the, the uh, framework that I lay out in this book about power, which, by the way, I define simply as a capacity to ensure that others do as you would like them to do. Mm-hmm. Right? That's just a plain—I know to some folks that sounds a little bit menacing or scary, but let's just be real about what we're trying to do in civic life. We're always at all turns uh, trying to ensure that others do as we would like them to do. That's politics, right? But when you think about the ways in which one, not only alone in isolation, but in community, tries to exercise power— Um, I I write about these three imperatives of changing the game, changing the story, and changing the equation. And your question goes straight to the second of those, changing the story. I think one of the most important ways that we as participants in American democratic life can exercise more civic power is to be mindful of the ways in which there are stories all around us uh, that are being used to justify current allocations of power, right? And you, you, you mentioned the way that Donald Trump has created a certain kind of otherizing language about immigrants about undocumented people about Muslims about refugees uh, and other disfavored groups Uh, but uh, you know it's not even just around those issues I mean think about economics the the language and the uh, rationale that you hear out there of trickle-down economics that we've got to take care of the wealthy and cut their taxes and coddle them in the uh, in our economic policy because their prosperity will leak down to everybody else if we do that right that's a nice fable and a fairy tale but it's just a story Right. It's not actually a set of economic facts. It's a story that incumbent holders of power use to justify their power. And our job as citizens is to both see those stories, name them, and then offer a compelling alternative because you can't beat something with nothing. Right. Right. And Wait, so,
0: How does that happen? Though? Well,
1: it hap- it's happening all around us. Let's go back to immigration. My friend, Jose Antonio Vargas. Uh, uh, the writer, the, the writer, journalist, journalist yeah. Pulitzer Prize winner and P.S., probably America's most famous undocumented person. Yeah. Right. Um, has been has not been content just to be telling his own story, which he's done very bravely and put himself out there at continuing risk, in fact, elevated risk now of deportation. Uh, He created an organization called Define American, whose whole objective is precisely what you're asking about, Amy, which is how do we reframe the story of who's an American and who's a contributor to this country? And that the idea that, look, citizenship matters uh, in in a legal sense, but at the same time, we have to understand that people who are undocumented, whether they're well-known people like Jose, who are known contributors to society, um, or whether they are the folks who, who, whose names you don't know, um, who, who clean the bathrooms in our public buildings, who make our, our, our meals in cafeterias, uh, um, you know, who are running the rental car uh, uh, operation at the airport, that, that these folks are actually part of the fabric of our community, and they, ha- they help define American, too, because they are part of a notion of American identity that is about aspiration, And it is about creating hybrids of cultures uh, that says, look, we're all here together making something that the rest of the world hasn't seen yet. Interesting.
0: Your idea of and use of the word citizen includes those who are undocumented then.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I grant that that notion, which is a broad notion, is situated in an American context, right? I'm not talking about global citizenship. I'm talking about life in the United States. And life in the United States means that we are all... Uh, whether we were born here or not we are all kind of inheritors uh, of a set of promises a creed uh, that the country hasn't yet lived up to right and that's what distinguishes being a member of this body uh, United States from say being a member of the body where my parents were born in China Uh, there's no Chinese idea there's no Chinese creed that the society is always trying to hold itself up against and say gosh we haven't made enough progress yet Uh, but but there is here right and I think uh, Uh, From from the beginning of the country, uh, through abolition, through suffrage, through the civil rights movement, through the marriage equality movement, uh, these kinds of shifts in inclusion and progress have been made because we have a story of ourselves that says we welcome all, but we also hold ourselves to these sets of principles, and when we fail to live up to them, we criticize ourselves till we get closer in alignment with them, right? That notion of citizenship Um, is one that is available and open to people with or without documents.
0: I'm thinking of all of the ideas about this country that I was raised thinking. And one is that you're responsible for your own success. You can pull yourself up from your bootstraps. And uh, another is American exceptionalism, that you are an an individual, rugged individualism. And another uh, could be, hey... um, you know, you can you know this this country, you can become anything that you want to be. and uh, that we're about freedom. And so, in this last week, uh, when I'm reading the news about what's going on by firing the FBI director and uh, Trump's response and the the White House response, I'm thinking the very things that we think about this country are actually shown to be either false or changing or different and one uh, congress member was like i'm trying to see how we're different from honduras or Mm -hmm. el salvador Mm -hmm. and i'm having a hard time right now
1: uh if you focus only on the beltway and national politics it is getting increasingly hard to distinguish us from guatemala or from a you know i mean the the idea that we are increasingly becoming a banana republic um, is true when you look at the, administ- the Trump administration. Mm. But the thing that I want to hasten to remind us is this country is so much bigger than its president. That ain't it, huh? That, that isn't. Is- <laughs> you know, uh, now I'm, not, I'm, not minim- I'm not minimizing the danger. We, we are on the precipice of a constitutional crisis. Uh, and once we cross that threshold, it's very unclear how it will uh, turn out. And that will have national and global reverberations. But at the same time, all around this country right now, here in Oakland, here in the Bay Area, in communities throughout the state of California around the country, people are participating in bottom-up civic renewal. People are participating in finding new ways to change their community. People, again, if you think about these, two two movements have sprung up just since Donald Trump became president. One is Indivisible. The other is uh, ACLU's people power movement, right? So both of these didn't exist four months ago Uh, But Indivisible grew out of a 26-page document that a group of former congressional staffers wrote as a Google Doc. They shared it on the internet, basically showing you as a citizen how you can apply pressure on your member of Congress, right? That document went super viral, which they didn't expect. But then even beyond it going viral, it then spawned over now 6,000 grassroots chapters, which are now not just focused on applying pressure on members of Congress when they do town meetings and whatnot, but people are now realizing, hey, we in Akron or in Stockton or in you know, Miami or wherever, we've come together initially to apply, apply pressure on our member of Congress. But now let's figure out what we can do in our community. Let's figure out what we, what we got to do together here to strengthen the social fabric uh, in, in our town. What right? do you
0: think are the highlights or the best lessons coming from that document and that movement?
1: Uh, I think one of the best lessons from the Indivisible Movement is that uh, at the end of the day, face-to-face matters most. Right, Indivisible wouldn't have happened without social media, it wouldn't have gone as rapidly viral as it did, right? And that is a uh, it is a blessing in that sense that Facebook and Twitter exist uh, because it helped uh, help that document spread like wildfire. But at the end of the day, what has mattered most is these 6,000 local chapters where people are eyeballing each other, they're feeling each other, they're being in the presence and the fellowship of one another and saying, hey, we're strangers, sort of, but we have a common cause now and a common sense of purpose Uh, and we're going to start exercising muscles that quite frankly uh, either we've never exercised or it's been decades since we exercised them right and this is different from the wonderfully also uh, you know uh, great things that have been happening like going mass numbers of people going to marches and so forth marches and protests are great but what we've got to have is that underlying layer of civic associations people coming together and meeting joining clubs forming clubs exercising those muscles of organizing right? Um, the same thing with ACLU people power. The ACLU again since the, the Trump uh, uh, well, They were raising a ton of money. After, raising a ton of money but they're also getting uh, these. After this, the Muslim bans After they... the Muslim ban they've gotten this fire hose of offers of volunteer support and the ACLU was like whoa, whoa. you know we're, we operate mainly as an organization where we have local chapters run by lawyers doing litigation right? They weren't built initially to be a people power army kind of thing. So they decided well we've got the army, we may as well actually backfill and and, and create the infrastructure for this. And so now, in the same way, in a decentralized, beautifully powerful way in communities around the country, also thousands of them, neighbors, citizens, activists, strangers are coming together. I was just at a people power meeting in D.C. um, at the basement of a a JCC on 16th Street. Mm. Um, And there was an incredible cross-racial intergenerational group of people gathered there that night, and they weren't there just to talk generally about the dangers to the Republic of the Trump administration. They were there in a very locally rooted way to ask and to figure out, how do we apply pressure on DC. city government so that DC. city government does all that it can to protect immigrants and refugees? Wow. You know, some
0: specific specifics, local organizing,
1: local organizing, looking at local ordinances, looking at lines of the budget for programs that need to be more fully funded, really concrete stuff. Right. Uh, And these were people who were prior to being invited or inviting themselves to this uh, to this meeting weren't particularly fluent uh, in the power structure of D.C. city government. Right. But now they're getting fluent in it. And I think this this is an age where everyday Americans are becoming fluent in power. Right. And this is part of the point. Uh, of the book that I've written, which is when we were joking earlier, we are in a primal scream moment still. But once you, once you pause in the primal scream, you realize that you've got to become more sophisticated about how you make demands uh, and how you influence the question that's at the heart of all politics, which is who decides. Right? See,
0: I always hear these five words: What can I do now? Mm-hmm. What do you say in a very simple way? I mean, you you, or, you just described two yeah. organizations, but
1: yeah, I, I have a very um, so there are two, ver- two questions that we get. One is, what, what do I do now, right? Um, and a variation of that is, uh, where do I begin? What issue should I pick? There's so many things, so many fires to put out right now, right? On the first question, what should I do now? My answer is very simple. Be like Ben, by which I mean Benjamin Franklin. Oh. Right? Benjamin Franklin.
0: I was like, invent the light bulb, yeah, but not no, ben- no, <laughs> the other no, no.
1: bit. Ben- <laughs> Benjamin Franklin was this addicted, <laughs> habitual, unstoppable club maker, he just he just formed every kind of club. It was just a habit, right? Stamp collecting clubs, philosophical clubs, artisan groups, debate societies, the first post office, the first public library, you know, the first fire department, just creating clubs like this, right? And, and 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 I'm saying you have to have that spirit in a moment like this of make a club. It can It doesn't even have to be that political. It can be a book club. It can be a gardening club. It can be a neighborhood group, but the exercising of these muscles of Organizing people. Just being
0: around your neighbors.
1: Being around your neighbors. And and look, one of the things that I say in the book is that, you know, there are three laws of power. Number one, it concentrates into these monopolistic situations. Number two, it it justifies itself, right, into these stories of why things are the way they are. But the thing that saves us is law number three, which is power is infinite. It is infinite. And I'm not, you know, I'm a Seattle dude here in the Bay Area. I don't mean this in some woo-woo new age way, right? Although I do like woo-woo new age. Me too. But but (laughs) I I mean this very concretely. Civic power is infinite because you and I can generate new power out of thin air through the magic act of organizing. When you invite one other human into a common endeavor with a common goal— and you start figuring out what that agenda is going to be. And you start figuring out who you got to reach to get into your club. Again, it can be gardening. can be stamp collecting. could be impeachment, right? I, I don't care what the subject matter is. But join a club or make a club is my first word of advice. On the thing of like, oh, gosh, there's so many issues. I don't know where to begin. Should I do refugees? Should I do, you know, this? Should I do guns? Should I do whatever? My simple, and again, I don't mean to be glib. My simple answer is pick anything. Pick anything one issue and just decide that for the next three to six months, you're going to go deep on that issue. And if that issue is immigrant rights, or if that issue is uh, voting reform, or if that issue is, uh, you know, uh, raising the minimum wage, whatever it might be, Pick that issue. Go deep. Figure out who the organizations are that are already working on it. Figure out how you can plug into those. If there aren't organizations there, figure out how you can help fill that niche and fill that space. But by deciding and committing that you're going to spend some number of months going deep there, uh, again, you will build muscle in a way that ultimately will be transferable to other issues if you decide after six months, you know what? That they, they got that issue. They don't need my help there, but I really want to focus on this other issue, right? I want to focus on LGBT rights or whatever it is. Um, at that point, you will have the muscle, you will have the literacy uh, to be able to read the map of power and rewrite the map of power.
0: You said something that made me think that perhaps progressives aren't that comfortable with the concept of power.
1: Mm-hmm. Is that true? I think that, well, I think it's true of people generally, but it's probably particularly true uh, of progressives. And One of the most important, uh, again, not to be glib, but messages that I have for our listeners and for uh, people in general uh, is if you have some squeamishness or qualms about such naked direct talk about power, get over it. (laughs) Seriously. Like we are in an age right now where um, if you think it's too dirty a word, if you think it's too sordid, if you think that, you know, uh, anatomizing, understanding power is just for uh, those bad people in charge and it's a kind of house of cards sort of thing then you create, you set in motion this self-fulfilling dynamic which says, oh, understanding power is not my thing, it's, it's those people over there, they do it, right? And if you, if you start spinning that store in your mind, you make it so, you are again, giving your power away heedlessly. And uh, now, I will say this, that it's not sufficient in civic life only to become literate in power, right? I have this very simple equation that citizenship is power plus character. Power plus character equals citizenship, right? So you do have to get literate in power and understand the sources and the forms and the strategies of exercising and applying money, power, people, power, ideas, power, so forth. But if all you have is that, if all you know is how to manipulate things or move things or get people to do what you want, then you're just a, you know, a really skilled sociopath. And we have evidence of that all around us in national politics right, right now. Right. If that's untethered to any moral sense or what I call character in the collective, right? When I say character, I'm not just talking about individual virtue and perseverance or diligence or whatever. I mean, do you believe in mutual responsibility and respect? Do you believe in inclusion and tolerance? Do you believe in reciprocity? Do you believe in contribution before consumption, right? This ethic of, I'm, again, I'm not a rugged individual. I'm woven into a fabric of relationship and obligation. You have to couple your knowledge of power with that sense of civic character. And I think this is a time, again, Where if you try to do that by yourself, looking at your Facebook feed, it's really hard. This is why, again, the power of face-to-face, being the company of others, um, helps sustain uh, both the learning about power, but also the the moral sensibilities that we've got to nurture in each other.
0: That's really powerful. Were you a club maker? I mean, how did you... Come to some of these ideas about the best way to engage in this democracy. You know, it's
1: really interesting. Um, uh, when I was a little kid, I really was. Uh, I actually recently, uh, in my mom's uh, uh, attic, found a... Uh, a notebook that I made in second grade for our neighborhood's Ranger Rick Club. Oh, uh, right. <laughs> with minutes and an agenda and all this stuff. You know? <laughs> kind of embarrassing, but uh, but kind of great what too. Kind right? of awesome. Uh, yeah. I don't
0: even know Ranger Rick is that still around? I'm not sure. That was a little booklet that it, they would well, give you.
1: Yeah, they, there was a magazine. it was a the World Wildlife uh, Federation, right? Uh, so it was all about environment and conservation and stuff. And uh, we'd go out in the woods and have our little Ranger Rick Club meetings. And um, so I was that as a little kid, but. Um, I, It's interesting, you know, in the arc of my career, uh, a lot of my political experience had been in Washington D.C. Right, working on Capitol Hill, then speech, speech
0: speechwriter, speechwriter, and uh, later a a domestic
1: policy advisor for President Clinton. And uh, and I would say actually to you that um, it wasn't until I left D.C. that I learned how to be a citizen. It wasn't until I left D.C. that I got in the habit of club making. And organizing and and be engaged with folks. Okay, D, D, yeah. Yeah. D, D C is a very artificial meta kind of symbolic kabuki theater politics. Oh, that's right that's interesting. It, it's just, uh, uh, I'm I'm not saying it's well. It's not without consequence. Obviously, you know what we're seeing on healthcare and, and immigration, there are real life consequences. But the nature of D C politics is very. Um, it's not just that it's elite; it's just removed and detached from actual grounding in place and community, right? I left DC in two thousand. I moved to Seattle, where I've been for seventeen years. Nice city. It's a great city, and it's what's what's great about it. Uh, apart from just you know things like the Bay Area, the physical beauty and the entrepreneurial spirit and all that, um, is that it is a place certainly compared to the East where I'd worked and had had grown up. Um, that is so non-hierarchical that if you show up and you decide. You want to do something in civic life, you want to get involved in something, you want to make a difference, you, you don't have to ask permission, just start doing it, right? And uh, and I found that uh, it was very easy to get involved in civic life in Seattle. I served on the, on the board of the Seattle Public Library for a decade. Uh, I helped found an organization called the Washington Alliance for Gun Responsibility after Sandy Hook. Um, I been was really front and center involved in the push successfully for a $15 minimum wage. Uh, in Seattle, which
0: impacted
1: the which entire then nation. set off a nice contagion around the country, right? But the 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 thing that I want to emphasize is Seattle is a place. It is a place of neighborhoods. It is a place with civic texture. It is a place with kind of sedimentary layers of culture, right? Uh, that once you really get to understand how, yeah, Seattle is kind of interesting mix of Scandinavian and Asian, right? Uh, and both Scandinavian and Asian styles are not. New York, brash, in-your-face styles. They're more subtle. They're more relational. They're more communal, right? Um, and it yields a certain kind of culture of coalition uh, in, in Seattle, right? That's so not thi-
0: unique though to Seattle, is it? Uh, I was going to ask you though. As beautiful and wonderful as a city, the Seattle, and it's like strongly progressive as well. You have so many communities, many many suburbs mm-hmm. or exurbs mm-hmm. uh, that are around some, you know, of the, the major urban centers. Would you say it's just as easy to organize in a suburb as it is to organize in a large city?
1: Um, perhaps not as as a matter of simple density even. Um, but I, but on the other hand, I think increasingly it is so because um, our picture of our suburbs, uh, we need to update our picture of the suburbs, right? The suburbs increasingly are not white picket fences with white families. Uh, suburbs are where Um, The great diversity of this country is beginning to bloom and blossom precisely because cities have gotten so hot and expensive and overpriced and gentrified that, um, you know, you have a lot of interesting social and economic and racial and ethnic um, uh, churn and diversity uh, in suburbs right now. So I do think there's a real opportunity um, if you think about, you know, nearby suburbs of Seattle uh, like uh, like Kent um, or even farther out. um, you know, Tacoma, uh, you know, Tacoma's is its own city in, in its own right. But you have these places now that are getting increasingly diverse um, and where new blood is coming in in ways that create opportunities for organizing, right? Opportunities to ask the core question of any community, which is, who is us? Who are we becoming, right? That is the core. That was the question at the heart of the French election. That was the question that Donald Trump rode to victory. Um, that You know, we're in a time where because we both have this uh, tremendous amount of inequality in our society, but also um, we're within sight of an age where we are a majority people of color country. Um, there is all this both hopeful and anxious asking of the question, who is us? Uh, and so I think whether you're in a suburb or a city, using that as a way to organize folks um, around, hey, let's think about what a new vision is for fill in the blank, your whatever your community is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is a uh, but, but, but you know, but just to close the point earlier, I mean, this is where it, it's been in Seattle uh, and being rooted in Washington state and a place that is very different from the kind of detached bubble of Washington, D.C. Uh, that I feel like I, I have learned so much about um, civic power and civic life. Mm.
0: Uh, there's this notion that if you're progressive or, you know, all along that continuum in that area, um, you're unpatriotic. Now, uh, I know you started out as uh, going to Marine Corps Officer Candidate School. uh, And so, and there are many people uh, that uh, we know that may have the same idea of civic life or what a democracy looks looks like or who we are that you Mm -hmm. would identify as progressive. How do we bridge progressives and patriotic? What could that look like? Or do we just hand that over to the right and say... Uh, that's their bailiwick, that's what they do.
1: Yeah, absolutely not on handing it over. I mean, I think, unfortunately, progressives have been in the habit since, you know, since Vietnam of handing over... Well, let me put it this way. The right has grabbed the flag and tried to claim patriotism for themselves, and too often the left has let them do it. Yeah, because right.
0: I mean, we know the anti-war soldier movement in Vietnam were both people who had served and were opposed to the policies. Yeah. So it was possible
1: Yeah. But, you know, I think one of the things that is really important to distinguish here, um, patriotism can be connected to the military or service in the military, but really my notion of patriotism has almost nothing to do um, with military service. My notion of patriotism uh, is actually inherently progressive. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the creed that this country is founded on. If you take it seriously, demands that we acknowledge our failures to live up to it, and then demands that we live up to it. And so, you know, th- there's a great um, uh, quote by a guy named Carl Schurz, who was a German immigrant. He became a general in the Union Army during the Civil War. Later, he became a United States senator uh, from Missouri. Um, and he was in national office at the time of a kind of like today, a, a rising amount of nativism, a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment, a lot of jingoism in the air. Right. And there was this kind of general storyline in politics then of, you know, my country right or wrong. And Carl Schurz gave this famous speech, the killer line of which is this it's not my country right or wrong. It's my country when right to be set when right when right to be kept right. When wrong to be set right. Mm. That to me is about the nicest, crispest it's like, de- definition of patriotism there is. Yeah. If you're only focusing on one half of that equation, you're not doing it right. Right? If all you're saying is, hey, we're right, we're awesome, I'm gonna pat myself on the back. No. If things are going well, then you've got to maintain that. But if all you're doing is focusing on where we, things are going wrong and you're only dissenting and you're only pointing out the failures, that also is insufficient, right? This is a, this is a notion of we have a creed which is both an opportunity and a burden upon us, uh, but it's also a blessing for us to actually get to try to live up to it. And uh, you can do that uh, through the Marine Corps as you did through the United States Army. Uh, you can do that through AmeriCorps or the Peace Corps. You can do that through your church group. You can do that through your neighborhood organization. You can do that through whatever, right? Whether it's military or civilian, the idea of showing up and contributing and participating, um, but is, and, it,
0: and also holding our government accountable oh, from absolutely. wherever you are,
1: absolutely, it doesn't
0: mean blindly following.
1: No, no, no. In fact, it quite means you know, it, it means being faithful to a notion of the Constitution. But look, the Constitution is—it's not like oh, there's one correct answer to the Constitution. I think part of patriotism, uh, in a of, of true patriotism. Is recognizing that American civic life is an argument, right? You're never going to resolve this. It is it is inherently a tension between liberty and equality, inherently a tension between pluribus and unum, right? Inherently a tension between colorblind and color colorconscious, um, inherently a tension if you're a fan of uh, a Broadway fan, uh, you know, of Hamilton, uh, a tension between a Hamilton view of a strong central government and a Jefferson view of a weak central government and strong localities, right? These are polarities that are built into both the Constitution and our political culture in the United States. And we're not meant to resolve them finally. God help us if one side ever wins permanent victory on any of those polarities, right? The point of being a citizen in the United States is for us together to be arguing it out about what's the right place in this moment to be on those various spectrums, right? Uh, And true patriotism demands that we understand those arguments, that we be literate in those arguments, and and again, that we have enough of a sense of our own power uh, of how to move our neighbors, how to move our elected officials, uh, how to move the media, uh, so that when we engage in those arguments, whether they are about, again, healthcare or immigration, or whether a president should be impeached, um, that we're not just rehearsing talking points that we grabbed off and scraped off Twitter, uh, but that we're actually situating them in a sense that we are links in a long chain here of ideas, and we better take seriously uh, uh, what it is that we're trying to sustain.
0: It's almost like you're teaching Civics 101, honestly. I mean, I know that's a part of what you're trying to do, is to get people to, to take another look and embrace what it is to be part of this country, to be a contributing yeah. member of society. and. Do you find that some of the foundational, when you <laughs> the foundational, you know, ideas that underscore what our democracy and our system of government uh, is comprised of, and what its goals are, and what these conflicts are, do you have to just educate people on the basics?
1: Sure. I mean, we we are where we are because not only four de- decades of inequality, but also several decades in which civic education has evaporated from public schools. Um, you know, more people. Uh, today can can could have named a judge on American Idol or The Voice, then can name a member of the Supreme Court. Um, the, you know there is just profound illiteracy about the basics of literally how a bill becomes a law, right? But even apart from that kind of mechanical side of how the, the operations of the three branches of government, um, I think there is a deeper uh, sense of we have got to look. The, the, you're you're an army veteran. Um, I, I so, so or you you you've you've been connected to the United States Army. I, I'm a fan of um, the show Band of Brothers, um, you know, which is about a company of uh, 101st Airborne soldiers uh, who uh, fought during the Second World War. There's one scene in that uh, miniseries that sticks in my head, um, and it's a you know it's not a very dramatic scene, but it's a scene where um, three officers are walking uh, along train tracks at night. Um, they're already in in, in uh, France and. Uh, and, a, and a sentry, one of their own sentries, says, halt, who goes there? And the sentry gets trigger finger and he's scared and he fires and he shoots one of his own officers, right? Um, and the other two officers panic and they don't know what to do. Um, they don't know how to stop the bleeding and they overdose uh, him with morphine, right? When finally, a few minutes later, the medic shows up and he asks the officers, okay, how many morphines did you give him? What did you do here? And they're like, I, I don't know. I, well, I don't know. And the medic says to them in this great ticked off way, you two are officers of the United States Army. It's your job to know. You should know, right? And I remember that line because I think we're in a moment right now where there are lots of people who are like, uh, "I don't know what Trump is doing. I don't know if this bill passed. I don't know," if, you know. And my answer is, you're a citizen of the United States. It's your job to know. You should know, right? We're not kidding around anymore, you know. And I think this is one of these things where, you know, this is not just a nice to have. We're in a moment of crisis where it's time to get up to speed and understand who decides stuff and and to understand Mm -hmm. how to inject yourself into the process of decision.
0: Even when I was watching Anderson Cooper, I don't watch cable news, let me just say. (laughs) Except (laughs) I was visiting with my sister and she had a big TV and it was on. Anderson Cooper uh, was interviewing Kellyanne Conway and she said, basically, the president can do what he wants and it's not appropriate for you to question anything the president does. And I was thinking, civics 101. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, it is, mm-hmm. <laughs> because there's supposed to be um, checks and balances mm-hmm. and unless you're a dictator or, you know, the Pharaoh. Uh, yeah, and that is <laughs> that is definitely,
1: uh, again, I don't want to minimize it. We are in dark and ominous times right now, but the the positive thing, um, you know, the the only thing really you can say that Donald Trump has accomplished uh, in, in his first hundred plus days um, is that he alone, as he likes to put it, he alone, is responsible for the single greatest surge of citizen participation, civic engagement, and civic empowerment that we've seen in this country in half a century. You have millions of Americans now, not just going to women's marches and science marches, but like we were talking about earlier, forming clubs, joining networks, getting activated, understanding the emoluments clause of the Constitution, understanding and trying to figure out um, what's going to happen with uh, this bill when it goes to committee. People are in a hurry-up way catching up on Civics 101, catching up on what it means to get off the sidelines as a spectator and get onto the field as a participant. Um, and I think this is a, you know, it's why I'm net optimistic still, I think. Oh, I love that term,
0: is it? Did yeah. you pick that up at Google? Oh, uh, no, no, <laughs> it's a techie net, kind of, net, net optimistic.
1: Net, net. Look, here's the thing, the the body politic is sick, but the immune system is kicking in, mm, right? I love that. When the, when the Muslim ban came down, and people did not have to await marching orders from anybody spontaneously in a bottom-up way. People swarmed to airports and train stations in defense of immigrants and refugees like antibodies to a virus. Just literally, we were swarming there. The immune system was kicking in. We were saying, no, you don't. No, you don't get to violate the Constitution and our norms and our dignity as citizens this way. We're going to swarm and we're going to keep on swarming. Right? And I think this is P.S. I know our audience here is progressive, but... Uh, the the phenomena that i'm describing right now are really in interesting ways today cross ideological this is a great moment for libertarians too who are really resistant to executive overreach this is a great moment for reform conservatives who are saying ho 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 hold on a second here this has nothing to do with conservatism what donald trump is uh, uh, unfurling here this is a really interesting moment for people across the political spectrum now to be rediscovering the power of bottom up voice and and presence right and i think that is a uh, Um, That's the thing that we've got to remember here. It's not just blue versus red, left versus right, uh, but it's really people who believe in bottom-up power versus people who are monopolists and hoarders of power. Um, That is what connected the dots between Bernie folks, Trump folks, uh, and other people in between. They all thought that a rigged game and a rigged establishment needed to be knocked over. And they were right, right? Trump himself is the wrong person uh, to be a, a solution to that problem. Uh, but it is right to say that the system has been rigged and that it's time for us in a bottom-up way to re-rig it.
0: What keeps you this energetic and focused?
1: You know what? I think it's um, – well, part of it is just being – I'm second generation. I'm the son of immigrants. Um, and all my life, uh, I've just had this internalized message of I didn't do anything except have the dumb luck to be born here, Right. And so all my life I've had this sort of sense of, I gotta earn it, I gotta contribute, like I gotta be useful, right? Uh, uh, my parents were the ones who put it all on the line and made a big risk, made a giant leap of faith and 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 came to this country. Uh, and so my job is to earn it. I, I think the second thing, quite frankly, is just that, you know, again, as dark as these times are are right now, this is a time of high purpose. Like if you believe in our country, if you actually want to make good in the ideals of this country, You know, I'm one of these history nerds who always used to think, like, oh, man, I wish I'd been alive and, you know, as a person of color allowed to participate in politics in, like, the 1930s or the 1850s. These periods where there was kind of peril in the air, disunion or war about to come and times of consequence, right? And now I'm like, well, be careful what you wish for. (laughs) (laughs) Back to the future. Back to the future, you know, but, (laughs) but it does mean that, you know, these are times of high purpose. We are in a time of peril in a time of some potential disunion. Um, And people like you, Amy, and people like me, who have, look, we are blessed. We have some- Totally blessed. We have some knowledge, we have relationships, we have understanding of how the system works. We have this little pile of capital, which is relationship capital, reputational, institutional, intellectual capital. And so once you see that, like you and I face a very simple binary, which is, am I gonna hoard that pile or am I gonna circulate, right? And I feel like our job right now, I mean, it's why we're having this conversation, is to circulate it as fast as we can so that enough people start finding their own power um, and we can get this thing back on track.
0: Spread the love.
1: That's right. Spread Eric, the power. Spread
0: the power. <laughs> Eric Lu. thanks so much for joining us at Democracy and Color. Amy, great. it's been
1: great to be with you. Thanks. <laughs>
0: podcast is sponsored by democracy in color and the episode recorded at skyline studios in oakland california produced by lulu matute and edited by brian matheson special thanks to charlene chang olivia parker arista burwell chen katherine sims emily naftalin and author of "You're more powerful than you think eric lu you can listen to future episodes on democracyincolor.com soundcloud stitcher and itunes and now google play and you can also connect with us on facebook and on twitter if you appreciate this podcast as much as we appreciate you please subscribe and rate us on apple podcast tell a friend a colleague or a neighbor to tune in for their dose of political intelligence and until next time thanks for joining us